0: Father, we thank you for the goodness of Jesus, and Lord, it is so true that Jesus is good, but I would just confess, Father, it feels feels so so small, in a sense, to say that Jesus is good, because he's better. He's better than anything, anything this world would offer, anything that our hearts would want to supplement him with. Lord, Jesus is just amazing, and Father, I pray That in our time of study today, you would deepen in our hearts the conviction that Jesus is good and better than anything else. Lord, we thank you for the good work Jesus has been doing and our brothers and sisters who are in Israel right now. Father, I pray as they are in Jerusalem on this Palm Sunday that you would be pouring out upon them blessing after blessing. May they encounter Christ and see his work, not only, not only as they look back at the history of that place, but as they look around at one another and see Jesus working in those people as well. Father, we pray that not only would you work in us and our brothers and sisters that are part of this church family, but the other churches of this community, pour out your spirit that the people of God in Brevard County would be renewed with a work that only Jesus can do. Lord, we want to see revival in our day. Our world needs the work of Christ, the power of your spirit in and through your people. And God, we would love for that to start here and now in this place, but it would breathe the joy of our heart if it started anywhere in this community and spread to us. And so I pray today that you'd be with Pastor Joshua Smith and True Life Church. May their gathering be filled with the Holy Spirit's work and may they go into this community on mission with Jesus until Jesus comes again. Father, it's in Christ's name that we make our prayer and all of God's people said, amen. Amen. Thank you, church. You may be seated. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to go ahead and turn to the gospel of Mark chapter one, Mark chapter one. This morning, we're continuing Uh, our series that we've just begun on the gospel of Mark. And before we look at our text, um, I just want to warm up our minds because we're going to have to do a lot of thinking this morning. And I'm going to warm up our minds by giving you a pop quiz. Don't you love when you come to church and the preacher gives you a pop quiz? Here you go. This is a brief quiz. It's only one question long. And I'm just going to ask that you would uh, refrain from answering out loud because it's probably not a good thing to cheat on a test in church. I'm just saying it's probably not the best. So, Let me ask you this question, and you think about your first response, your answer. Here's the question I have. What did Jesus do to change your standing before God? What did Jesus do to change your standing before God? Here's one of the reasons why I asked that question. As someone who grew up in Christianity, my dad's a pastor, my grandfather was a church planner, spent a lot of time hearing preaching and teaching and really solid, solid gospel was planted into my life through my parents, as someone with that track record, I will tell you that for the majority of my life, my answer to that question would be something like this. Jesus died on the cross to pay for my sins. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Yeah, well, here's the story. I I don't think I'm the only one who would have that as their initial answer because most of the people that I speak with, when I talk to them about Jesus, something that is very common knowledge and usually a pretty quick answer is that the thing Jesus did to change our relationship with God is that he died on the cross to forgive our sins. They say something very similar to that phrase. And I want you to notice that in that phrase, the focus is on the forgiveness that Jesus provides for us through the work he did in his death. And before all of you start pegging me as a heretic and throwing the Lord's Supper elements at me in rebellion, I want to just say this. That's absolutely true. Okay, so that is absolutely true. Jesus, of course, died on the cross, and he did so as a payment for our sin so that we could be forgiven. Because there is good reason that on Palm Sunday morning we gather to celebrate that Jesus came into the city of Jerusalem on a mission to lay his life down as a sacrifice for our sins. But here's the point that I'm wanting to make. It's not just the death of Jesus that changes our standing before God. The life of Jesus And here's what I mean by that. What Jesus did before he went to the cross to die. The life of Jesus brings a change to our standing as well. And that's what this morning's focus is going to be about. We see two things here at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry detailed in the gospel of Mark that have an eternal impact on how God relates to you, on how God sees you in light of the work of Jesus. So let's pick up where we left off last week as we prepare our hearts on this Palm Sunday to celebrate the Lord's Supper and look at the work of Christ. Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn apart and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. This is the word of God for us this morning. And as I've been studying and preparing for the gospel of Mark, I've got to tell you, I have really struggled with how to teach this first chapter in Mark's account of the gospel. And and the reason why is because Mark really hits the ground running. He's at a full sprint as he catches us up, on the life of Christ. I hope you noticed in five quick verses, Mark summarizes two absolutely monumental events in the life of Jesus' ministry. In verses 9 through 11, he summarizes the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist. In verses 12 and 13, he summarizes the whole temptation of Christ in the wilderness battling against our spiritual enemy, Satan himself. And what you notice is he leaves out most of the details that we find in places like Matthew and Luke and John. And here's what he's doing in a sense. He's forcing us, as we look at these two monumental events in the life of Christ, he's forcing us to take a look at the big picture and not get lost in all of the details. He wants us to see what the big picture implications are for the baptism and temptation of Jesus Christ. And so rather than split those events and look at all the details you find in the other gospels. For the most part this morning what I want us to do is just to think about what there is for us to contemplate in those two big events in Christ's life. His baptism and his uh, temptation in the wilderness. So let's start with the baptism of Jesus. And I think the good place to begin this morning is by asking a question we, we brought up last week. Why did Jesus get baptized? Okay, so if you weren't here last week, you need to have a little bit of background on the first few verses of the Gospel of Mark. John the Baptist was sent by God into the wilderness to prepare the way for Jesus to come, to prepare the hearts of people to receive Jesus. And and what we see is that as John's preparing people's hearts to receive Jesus, his ministry consists of two primary things that would prepare the hearts of people. The first thing is that John told people the truth about Jesus. He said, the one who's coming is mighty and worthy and holy. Jesus is mighty, worthy, and holy, which is glorious about Jesus, but also has an implication for us. We're not mighty. We're weak. We're not worthy, we're unworthy, we're not holy. We are all sinners. And so that's where he began to say, prepare then. The holy, worthy, mighty one is coming and you need to be prepared for his presence. And that's the second thing that he called people to do, to repent of their sin. He said, listen, the the holy one is coming. And you need to be ready to receive him because he is holy and you are sinners. You are called to repent of your sin. And the way he called people to express their repentance was through the act of baptism. Mark chapter one, verse four, you can look at this, says, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. Okay, so John's in the wilderness. He's calling people to repent and to express their repentance through the act of baptism because Jesus is on his way. And in our text this morning, Jesus shows up. He's not just on his way anymore. He's finally here. And what's the first thing Jesus does as he meets John the Baptist? He gets baptized. But here's the question we should ask. Jesus has never sinned. That means Jesus doesn't need to repent. He's the worthy, mighty, holy one. He doesn't need to repent. So why was Jesus baptized? Well, many scholars believe that it's because Jesus wanted to be a Baptist. And so he needed to be baptized by a Baptist preacher. Just kidding. Of course, Jesus was already a Baptist. What else would he be? Seriously, though, here's where we need to go to another passage of scripture. All right. Matthew tells us what Jesus says about his own baptism. Matthew 3, verses 13 through 15 says this. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him. Now notice this. John would have prevented it, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he, John the Baptist, consented. All right, so get the scene here. When Jesus approaches John to be baptized, John, knowing he's been proclaiming a baptism of repentance, has the same reaction that we initially should have. He tries to prevent Jesus. He says, Jesus, I know that you're the perfect lamb of God. You came to take away sin because you had never sinned. He also knew that Jesus as holy didn't need to be baptized then. The other thing you find that John seems to be doing is that he seems to realize that Jesus, I've been telling people you're coming. And if you get baptized, they're going to associate you with all of the sinners who've been repenting of their sin. And Jesus, I've been telling him, you're the holy one, not a sinner. So you don't need to be baptized for your own repentance. And also you're running the risk of associating yourself with all of these people who are sinners. And what you notice is that John doesn't correct him. He doesn't say, well, well, I mean, Jesus doesn't correct John. He doesn't say, you know, I have sinned. You just don't know about it and I need to repent. He doesn't say that at all he doesn't say, you know what, you're right. I don't want to be associated or identified with all these sinners, so I might want to sit this one out. He doesn't say that. He says this, John, there's another reason why I will be baptized. And it's not because I need to repent. It's because I have come to fulfill all righteousness. That phrase, fulfill all righteousness, basically means to do everything according to the will of God. Now, some of this remains a mystery to us because we don't have the account of when God the Father revealed to Jesus that it was his desire for Christ to be baptized. So there's some mystery in this. But what Jesus is essentially telling John is that it was part of God's perfect plan for Christ's life that he would be baptized by John even when it identified him with sinners like us. And I would say maybe precisely because it would identify Jesus with sinners like us. You see, that's a a huge reason why Christ came on a mission to this world. He came to be a human being. He came to be you and me as far as a representative of humanity. He chose to identify with sinners by becoming a man like us. And when he came, I hope you think about this. Jesus came as a man and didn't go directly to the cross. He could have gone to the cross the day after his birth and essentially still been the spotless lamb of God, but he doesn't go directly to the cross. He lives a full human life on earth because the plan of God was for Jesus to come and have a life filled with good works as one of us to fulfill the will of god to do listen everything we have failed to do you see sin is not just doing what's wrong sin is failing to do what's right listen to james chapter 4 verse 17 so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him it is sin we call these sins of omission it's when you fail to do what's right. And here's the story. All of us have sinned in this way we've all failed to step in or live up to the good things God's called us to do. So we have failed to always love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. There have been times in our lives where we have loved other things in a way we should have loved God. We've failed to do what's right. We failed to always love our neighbor as ourself. We've failed to live sacrificially. We failed to be completely truthful. We have failed to be perfectly generous. We have failed to do the good things God has called us to do. So Jesus came to this earth as one of us to fulfill righteousness on our behalf. Okay, so it's fitting then that when Mark writes the good news about Jesus, his first chapter includes that the beginning of Christ's public ministry, his first public act would be to do what's right as a fulfillment of God's will. That's why Jesus was baptized, to fulfill righteousness as one of us. And I want you to just think about how this connects with last week. As people were being baptized by John, it was an expression of their repentance. And repentance is sort of a a twofold act. It's not just turning your back on something. It's turning your face to something. So they were saying, in essence, when they were baptized, I wanna be done with sin and I want my whole life to be filled with righteousness, pure and clean in God's eyes. And that's essentially what Jesus was doing in his baptism as well. While he didn't have to repent, Of any sin, he was still making it clear his back was turned to sin. And his desire was to live a pure and holy, righteous life in the eyes of God, his Father. And he was doing what we were unable to do. We said we wanted when we repented. We said we wanted to be done with sin. Well, Jesus is fully and completely being righteous, No longer, or no, not ever, a part of sin, and that actually brings us back to our text because that's the that's the scene that we get as Jesus expresses his desire for righteousness. Look at Mark one verses ten and eleven. Jesus is baptized to fulfill all righteousness. Look at, and when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn apart. Are open, and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. You see that? Jesus went under the water as an expression of his commitment to be holy and pure before God. And I think this is a really good place. I'll just step here for a moment. That's a, a great example of why we're baptized by immersion. You see, it says that Jesus came up out of the water. In the original language, it's even more clear that it's talking about him having been under the water, coming up out of the water. And here's the reality. When you get sprinkled, you're not coming up out of the water, right? Immersion is the mode of baptism because it's the example of Christ and the meaning of the word to baptize. But I kind of digress there. When Jesus came up out of the water, something happened that had not happened to the multitudes that John had been baptizing. What is it that happened? In one of the great Trinitarian scenes in the entire Bible, the heavens open up and God the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus and God the Father audibly speaks from heaven and says this, you are my beloved son, with you I'm well pleased. Here's what God is doing. The Father is publicly affirming that Jesus was completely pleasing to him. In other words, God the Father is affirming Jesus is indeed completely righteous. So not only did Jesus come to fulfill righteousness, God the Father says Jesus is fully righteous. Righteous, okay, so that's the baptism of Jesus. That's the best I could do at a synopsis of the big picture of what's going on. Jesus was baptized to fulfill righteousness on our behalf, and God the Father confirmed that Jesus was completely, perfectly righteous. Okay, so hold on to that for just a moment, let's move to the next thing the temptation. Of Jesus, right? We'll go through this fairly quickly. In verses 12 through 13, we're told that as the Holy Spirit empowers Christ, he sends him out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan for 40 days. And then Mark doesn't give us any more of the details. He just says, this is what happened. And Matthew tells us that during that entire time, Jesus had been fasting. So he's physically weak. He's in an isolated and desolate place. He's the weakest in a sense that a man can physically and socially and maybe emotionally be. And at that moment, Satan himself comes to Jesus and he tempts him with the kind of temptation that only Satan himself could throw at a person. And so think about what we're seeing here. Jesus is fully a man. He's identifying with us As a matter of fact, one of the reasons why we studied Philippians 2 before we started Mark was so that we could see that Jesus intended to live fully as a man by laying aside his rightful attributes as God so he could live fully as one of us. So Jesus goes into the wilderness, he's tempted, he's completely one of us, a man. And in a sense, what you find in in this scene, and I don't have time to go down this road, but what you find is that humanity is getting a second chance. Remember how the Bible starts. our Our first parent, Adam, the first man, is in a garden and he's there being tempted by Satan himself. Satan is tempting Adam and he falls. That's how sin entered the world. But here we have Jesus by himself in the wilderness, enduring temptation. And unlike our father, Adam, this new man, this Christ doesn't do what's wrong. As a matter of fact, Hebrews 4.15 tells us this, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. You see that? Jesus came to identify with us. He's like we are in a sense. He's a man. He's a high priest who can feel what you feel when you're tempted, who knows what it's like to be weak, to be isolated, to feel and be alone. And that includes the fact that he faced every form of temptation that humanity is able to face, but Jesus never sinned, right? So now put those two monumental events together. In the baptism and the temptation of Jesus, here's what we see. We see Jesus came to fulfill righteousness. He came to do every good thing that God has called people to do. And he came to resist unrighteousness. He came so that he would not ever do the things that God has said we shouldn't do. He did those things identifying with us on our behalf. And guys, that's our big idea for this morning. Jesus came to fulfill righteousness and resist unrighteousness on our behalf. That's the big picture that we get in these monumental events in Christ's life. And that brings me all the way back to the pop quiz all of you have already forgotten about. The question, what did Jesus do to change your standing before God? And if you didn't know how to answer that beyond he died to forgive my sin, I want you to know we just found another thing that you did to affect and change your standing before God. You see, it's not just the death of Jesus that changes our standing. It's the life of Jesus. Let let me say it this way. If you're trusting in Jesus, you're forgiven of your sin. And that's good, right? But listen you are more than forgiven of your sin. You are counted to be completely and perfectly righteous in Christ. You are counted by God as though you have done Every single thing that God Almighty has commanded you to do. Think of it this way. Imagine that you had no record at all with God, right? You'd never done anything right, but you'd also never done anything wrong. You're kind of a zero on God's ledger. What'd your pastor preach about this morning? He said I was a zero on God's ledger and it didn't feel good. So you're at a zero, right? You've not done anything good or wrong. That's, that's not bad, but it's also not good. You're there at a zero. But imagine that you sin. And that takes you to a negative 10 on God's ledger. That would be a bad thing. You're going in the wrong direction. You'd be in debt to God. What would forgiveness do? Well, the word forgiveness means to cancel a debt. Forgiveness would put you back at zero, and listen, compared to negative 10, I guess zero is a good thing, right? But, but, but if you have student debt that you've racked up in school and you get that debt forgiven, that's a, that's a good thing. Can you imagine that happening? <laughs> Sorry, it's a current event, you should be aware of. But that won't buy you a house, right? That won't feed your family. Getting back to zero is better than being in debt, but it's not quite where you need to be to live. You need more. You need something in your account, not just a debit against your account. And here's what Jesus did. Jesus came to live a life that God in his ledger would count to be right. He deposited righteousness. Now, he wasn't just positive 10 or positive a million or positive Googleplex, which is what Mr. McCann my junior high teacher said was the largest number in existence. I don't know if that's right, but I think it's cool. Googleplex, this massive, infinitely righteous, Jesus came to live that life, to have that kind of standing with God. Now, what would happen If Jesus credited his righteousness to you, you wouldn't just go from negative 10 to zero. You would jump from negative 10 to Googleplex. And and my voice just changed, I think. And that's exciting. Maybe I'll sound like Adrian Rogers next week, but that's not the point. You find that Christ gives us his status which does more than provide forgiveness. It provides full righteousness with God. You might want some Bible for me to back that up. Let me give you some. Romans chapter 5 verses 18 and 19 says this, therefore as one trespass, led to condemnation for all men, talking about Adam's sin that caused humanity to fall. So one act of righteousness, the righteous life of Christ, leads to justification in life for all men. For by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man, Jesus' obedience, the many, look at this phrase, will be made righteous. Guys, through Christ's obedience, when you trust in Jesus You are more than forgiven. You're justified. That we're justified means to be counted as perfectly right in the sight of God. God looks at your life when you are in Jesus and he sees the full obedience of Jesus Christ. He looks at your life and he treats you as though you have lived the same life that Jesus lived. That's good news. That's more than forgiven. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Listen to me, friend. When you place your faith and trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, not only is your sin placed on Jesus so that it can be punished at the cross and you can be forgiven, Christ's perfect life is applied to you in a way that you become in the sight of God and on his spiritual ledger, you become the righteousness of God himself. And friends, that is amazingly good news. Because of Jesus, you are not just at a zero in God's book. It means your Christian life isn't that Jesus got you back to square one. Now you take it from here. It's not that you have to work and live and try to be pleasing to God or to be acceptable to God or to add your account in a way that God would be happy with your life. Let me put it a different way. As our holy God looks at you, what do you think he sees? What do you think he has to say? Some of you don't want to think about that. When you think about a holy God looking at your life more than anyone around you, you know what you've done. You know the things you've thought. You know the desires you've had. you, You know that God sees and knows it all. He knows every thought, every intention, every word, every deed. And you don't want to think about what that God who sees it all would have to say about you, no one all of your life. Let me, let me dig deeper into that. Some of, of the people in this room live with guilt over your past sins. Some in this room struggle to pray because you feel so inadequate. Some people work as hard as they can so they can try to get God to like them and avoid the feeling that God is upset like an angry father with them. Some of us feel like we're so in debt to our past that we can't enjoy our present and we dread our future. There are people in this room, and I'm telling you, by the multitude there are people in this room who have this overwhelming fear of the future. You have this dread Like, even if things are going okay right now, surely the day is going to come when God will let it all fall apart. The other shoe is going to drop because I know what I've done. Some of us in this room feel insecure in all of our relationships because we've never felt completely wanted or accepted by anyone, let alone God. Some people in this room are tempted to give up on the Christian life because we feel our weakness. And day after day, it feels like we take one step forward and two steps back. And surely, though God has forgiven us, he must be tired of us now. Because there are a hundred other conditions in our hearts that stem from the fact that we don't understand this element of the gospel. But listen to me. If you are trusting In Jesus Christ, as your Lord and Savior, do you know what God has to say about you? I'll tell you. It's what he said about Jesus. He says, you are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. In you, I am well pleased. Listen to me. Hear the voice of Almighty God, Christian You're more than forgiven. God looks at you and he sees the righteousness of his own son. With you, God is completely pleased because of Jesus. With you, you don't have to earn his pleasure. You already have it. You don't need to improve your standing because you can't. With you, God is completely pleased. Just let that wash over you for a moment. Don't rush by it. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ, not because of anything you've done and not hindered by anything you've done, Almighty God is completely pleased with you. You are loved. You are accepted. You are the beloved of Almighty God. And you cannot do anything to add to that so enjoy it rejoice in Jesus god is pleased with you what did jesus do to change your standing with god before he died he lived the perfect life you failed to die to live and at the cross he died the death you deserved to die So that you could be forgiven of all your sin and you would be perfectly pleasing with all righteousness in the eyes of God the Father. So what do we do? Well, here's what we do. We take two practical steps. First, we trust Jesus. If you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus, friend, today is your day. Bow before Christ. Stop trying to earn your salvation. Stop trying to get God to accept you by your own works. You can, you'll never be able to do enough. That's why we need Jesus. And Jesus came to live the life you could not live and die the death that you should have died if you will trust in Jesus. The promise of the gospel is you will be forgiven by the power of God You will be restored to righteous standing in the eyes of God and you will be filled with the Holy Spirit to live a life pleasing to God. Trust in Jesus, friend, if you've never come to Christ in faith. The second thing is this. For those of you who are trusting in Jesus, thank God for his unspeakable gift. You want to know a great practical response to this truth this morning? It's called thanksgiving be thankful. Before the Father, prepare your heart for Easter by giving deep and genuine thanksgiving to the work of Christ. You're more than forgiven. You are righteous in the sight of God. And guys, that brings us to the Lord's Supper. This meal is a thanksgiving meal. It's an opportunity for us to meditate on the truth of the gospel and For those of you who may be visiting with us this morning, I would encourage you, if you've not placed your faith and trust in Jesus, then I would encourage you, first, trust in Christ. Trust in Jesus. But if you're not at that place where this is an expression of your faith, I want to encourage you, don't take the Lord's Supper, because this is just an expression of faith. It doesn't save us. It's not a work that makes us more acceptable to God. So if you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus, my prayer would be this would be your first outward expression of faith in Jesus. As we contemplate the gospel, I wanna encourage you to take that top layer and peel it back and hold that wafer in your hand. And this, this bread represents something. It represents the body of Jesus Christ. And oftentimes more often than not, when we hold this wafer in our hand, we think about the body of Jesus having been broken for us. And that's absolutely true. And that's something we should consider this morning. But before Christ went to the cross in his body, this is a reminder that in his body, he lived a perfect life. The kind of life that God the Father would completely bless and rejoice in and accept. And he lived that life in his body for you. And after his life, he went to a cross so that in his body, he could pay the price for your sins. so Jesus lived and he died in a body as a man identifying with you in your place. And his body was broken. And by his broken body, we are healed and restored to God. Would you bow your heads and give thanks for the bread? Father, thank you for the body of Jesus, that God became a man and lived among us. Thank you that as one of us, Jesus lived a perfect life, a life that you would eternally bless so that when we come to Christ, that life is counted as our own. So Lord, we thank you for Jesus in his life. We thank you that in his death, he endured the suffering for our sin to provide for our forgiveness. And we thank you for the body of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you take the bread? Peel back that layer that exposes the juice. This juice represents the blood of Christ. But remember when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper with his disciples, he held the cup in his hand and, and he said, that this isn't just my blood. He said, this is the new covenant that's in my blood. A covenant is an agreement between two people. And it's an agreement that's basically a promise, a promise for how those people will live in relationship to one another. And when Jesus, by his blood, established a new covenant, here's what he was doing. He was establishing a new agreement between mankind and God for how God would relate to us. And how does God relate to us? He relates to us, listen, as though we're Jesus. We have all the love and acceptance, all of the kindness, all of the goodness, all of the eternal blessings in heavenly places because in Christ's new covenant, he made a way for God to agree to relate to us as though we're his son, we're his daughter, And in us, He's well pleased. Would you bow your heads and give thanks for the blood of Christ, Lord? I want to thank you that Jesus, on the cross, as a sacrifice for our sin, shed His blood. That without the shedding of blood, there's no remittance or forgiveness of sin. Thank you. We're forgiven by the blood of Christ. And Father, thank you. Jesus established a new covenant, a new agreement, a new relationship that you would relate to us as though we have all of Christ's righteousness because we do. And Lord, I pray that our hearts will be filled with thanksgiving. For those who've been trapped in guilt and shame because of their past sin, help them believe the gospel, that they are perfectly pleasing to you because of Jesus. For those who work real hard to try and make you happy, help them to know that you're already pleased with them because of Jesus. Father, for those who can struggle at times to even pray because they don't feel deserving to be in your presence. Help them to believe the gospel that you are pleased with them already in Jesus. Lord, we thank you for the blood of Christ, for his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his glorious resurrection on our behalf. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Would you take the cup with me?